sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the UK Home Secretary approving the extradition of journalist and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and what that's going to mean for Assange moving forward. Also going to be talking about the results of this weekend's presidential elections in Colombia and going to be talking about the real history of Juneteenth. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, Sean, already I think we're doing Juneteenth wrong. Not that I'm opposed to a federal holiday. I mean, if anybody should get several days off work just because, it's the descendants of those folks who worked in bondage to build the wealth and power of this country, but shared in none of it. And that's why I think it's not enough that we get an extra day off work when we still have not been able to realize our fair share of the wealth and power that our ancestors created and that only grew by denying their descendants access to it long after slavery was legally ended. I think the first thing we need to do, though, is get a few things straight about why we celebrate Juneteenth in the first place. It is not true that the enslaved in Texas did not know that the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed on January 1st, 1863, and that the Civil War was over. Friends of the show at hoodcommunist.org note that, quote, of course, Texans of all races knew that Robert E. Lee surrendered his armies in April 1865, and they knew that Lincoln was assassinated shortly thereafter. They had newspapers and the Telegraph and letters from those who left the battlefield. Enslaved people were aware of anything that white people knew, end quote. The question then people should be asking is why did it take two years for Texas to comply with the Emancipation Proclamation? And the answer is because there was no power in Texas to enforce it. And you have to understand what the Emancipation Proclamation actually did to get that part. First, understand that the so-called great emancipator Abraham Lincoln, okay, he wasn't. In the early days of the war, he ordered that enslaved people who escaped to Union lines be returned to their slaveholders because he wanted to accommodate the southern states as much as possible and keep them in the Union, even as slave states. Remember, Lincoln said in a letter to New York Tribune editor Horace Greeley in August 1862, quote, my paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union and is not either to save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. End quote. He was quite clear. So in his effort to keep slaveholding states that had not seceded from doing so, the proclamation only applies to states that had already seceded. It completely ignored 
the Union Loyalist states of Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri that were slaveholding states. They did not end slavery until December 1865, when the 13th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified. And at the end of the Civil War, without the presence of Union troops who were still making their way across the country to enforce the proclamation, Texas slave owners went on enslaving until those Union troops finally arrived to make them stop two years later. So Juneteenth is not when the enslaved in Texas found out they were free. It was when the U.S. government, under the power of the Union Army, was finally able to enforce the Emancipation Proclamation in Texas. And even then, the Texas Proclamation that was read in Galveston, uh, General Order Number 3, urged the newly freed people to, quote, remain at their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere, end quote. Imagine thinking a plantation where you were enslaved is a home and that the people who enslaved you are suddenly going to pay you wages for the work that they used to force you to do for free. The formerly enslaved didn't wait around to see if any of that would happen because they knew better. They bounced. But a couple of other points about Lincoln, though. On April 16th, 1862, Lincoln signed a bill ending slavery in the District of Columbia that provided for immediate emancipation for the enslaved and compensation to former slave owners who were loyal to the Union and paid them up to $300 for each freed slave. And there was a provision that would have allowed for voluntary colonization of former slaves to locations outside of the U.S. with payments of up to $100 for each person choosing immigration. Over the next nine months, the Board of Commissions appointed to administer the act approved 930 petitions for former owners for the freedom of 2,989 former slaves, and they didn't pay any of the former enslaved anything. And it's rarely mentioned that on December 31st, 1862, the day before signing the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln signed an order sending a group of 500, quote, contrabands, formerly enslaved people, to Il Vache, a small island off the coast of Haiti in 1863. They experienced hunger and disease after being left with no provisions since so-called financial investors and speculators pillaged the $100,000 that was allocated for the colonization project that Lincoln approved, and only 365 survived when they were rescued in 1865. Lincoln also tried to negotiate with the British and the Dutch governments to colonize former enslaved people there, but those efforts also failed. And that was really the only compensation that was supported for the formerly enslaved colonization, resettlement somewhere else, and the money was basically stolen for that. And that's the part of this federal holiday for Juneteenth that we're missing, aside from a clear and correct history, the recompense part. 
What amends have been made for the harm caused to the enslaved and their descendants with a federal holiday recognizing Juneteenth? What amends have been made for the denial of the fair share in the wealth built by those who were enslaved? What has been done to rectify the denial of the fair share of the continued prosperity of this country by the racial segregation and discrimination in every aspect of American life that followed the end of slavery up until this very day? Does a federal holiday observing Juneteenth even address those issues? Of course not. And that's the trick we need to be sure we don't fall for, letting this country off the hook for what it absolutely owes us in tangible resources and true justice and equality in exchange for another day off work. Some state-sponsored festivals where the actual history of the day is watered down and never told, and maybe some Juneteenth ice cream. Juneteenth is about the perpetual struggle for African people's liberation in this country. Let's not let politicians and corporations water it down to be anything other than that. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Mohamed Almazi, a UK-based freelance journalist and contributor to numerous outlets, including The Dissenter, Jacobin, The Canary, and Electronic Intifada. Mohamed, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Definitely. And Mohammed, of course, here recently, we've seen UK Home Secretary Priti Patel uh, approve the extradition request of journalist and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to the United States, something that has uh, uh, been the subject of sharp criticism, certainly from WikiLeaks and other sort of uh, uh, journalist freedom and uh, civil liberty organizations. I mean, it's my understanding that Assange uh, does have some uh legal uh, recourse uh, left in terms of his options. But I'm just generally wondering, you know, uh, what you're thinking of this development as, you know, this almost seems like uh, the culmination of a years long running campaign uh, to attack Assange. Uh, yes, or yeah, decades long, uh, depending on how far you want to go back. And I think it's fair to go back uh, nearly a decade as uh, one of uh, Julian Assange's uh, lawyers, Jennifer Robinson, a barrister, said at the press conference, which was like a couple of hours after the announcement by Priti Patel's home office, that they had decided to authorize uh, Julian's extradition. Well, if people want to see the various reactions and statements of individuals, organizations, jurists, scholars, politicians, etc., if they go to don'textraditeassange.com and then you click on statements, you'll see literally dozens of organizations, including fairly establishment ones like the OSCE, the Organization for Security Cooperation. And uh, 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 anyway, their media representative uh, it's come out quite strongly against this, even going back a couple of years. Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, right? But they have like a media section. So I, as I think I've informed your uh, viewers or listeners before, there are still appeals, uh, as you've noted. There are still potential appeals up to the European Court of Human Rights in relation to the 
American government's assurances that that Julian will be treated in such a manner that would not increase his risk of suicide were he to be extradited. If you recall, that's what those assurances led the high court to reverse the lower court's decision to bar his extradition on the basis that given the conditions where in which it was accepted that he'd be held or likely be held under both pre-conviction and post-conviction if he was convicted. Uh, that he would be a high, a very high risk of suicide, uh, also because he's on the autism spectrum and has a history of clinical depression, suicidal suicide attempts and suicide, successful suicides and other members of the family combined with extremely harsh sort of isolation that he would be subjected to days, weeks, months, even years in the United States. But uh, then there's also all this uh, other grounds of appeal, which, you know, people may know as the cross appeal, which has yet to be properly heard. And those are all the uh, charges in relation to, sorry, the grounds that uh, that the defense raised originally that he shouldn't be extradited in addition to the medical arguments. There's the fact that uh, this would violate, they say, a fundamental tenet of freedom of speech guaranteed under the European Convention of Human Rights. He wouldn't get a fair trial in the States because he's charged in the Eastern District of Virginia, which means his entire jury would come from, you know, workers who are employed at the CIA, FBI, NSA, Homeland Security, the U.S. Pentagon. Literally, that's why people are charged under the Espionage Act. They could choose any district in the United States. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds to choose from. They choose the Eastern District of Virginia because, you know, that's where Langley and uh, is, uh, the CIA and other other national security linked agencies are based. So you're almost certainly going to be a current or former worker or family member of those who work there. And, you know, the other the other issues of like CIA spying on lawyer client privilege shows that he can't have a fair trial, violation of due process, those those kinds of arguments. So there's still a number of key appeal grounds. Those ones would still be uh, dealt with within uh, UK courts and the assurances they've exhausted all domestic remedies. So now they're looking at the European Court of Human Rights uh, when they will file that. Uh, is an administrative technical sort of matter that depends on a number of factors. We'll find out more. Uh, I've tried to find out from them, but uh, apparently for some reason they're keeping that close to their chest, presumably because they just haven't decided for various reasons when, you know, at what point is the best point from a practical standpoint to file the appeal for the, on the assurances matter to the European Court of, of Human Rights. Yeah, and this uh, attack on Assange uh, also comes in coordination with a supported uh, expansion, uh, an expansion of the official secrets laws in the UK that, of course, Priti Patel and the Home Office supports that would expand uh, punishments against what the UK calls uh, leakers, recipients of leaks, and secondary publishers, including journalists, from the current maximum of two two years to as high as 14 years in prison. Now, with this uh, decision to uh, extradite Assange, how much more likely is it that the official secrets laws will be expanded to include these additional punishments? 
Well, the interesting thing is, so I wrote a piece on that with Kevin DeSouza, the dissenter, right? On um, it looks like that they. So what in 2015 was it when the Snowden revelations came out? Then Prime Minister David Cameron had had requested a review into UK official secrets laws, right? So it wasn't they weren't looking at oh look at all this illegal mass surveillance, etc. Uh, we we need to curtail this. It was the opposite. It's how can we make it even harder for whistleblowers and publishers, right? And um, so various suggestions were made that uh, uh, we saw during a consultation because you're supposed to have a consultation before law bills, you know, get put before parliament. Of course, sometimes no one is aware of it or it's a very short amount of time. And um, yes, there were many kinds of uh, restrictions, uh, things that hurdles you had to overcome before you could prosecute someone even under the Official Secrets Act. I think one of the things on some of the charges you need to show that there was damages or harm done to national security. And so they wanted to get rid of all these things to actually have to prove any actual harm or what have you. Now, what has happened we haven't seen a tech, technically a bill called Official Secrets Act 2002. What we have seen and what is currently being debated in Parliament right now is a national security bill. It's called the National Security Bill. It will be called Act if it gets through and which has various segments to it. But one of the key uh, segments that relates to what we're discussing now is the criminalization of possession or sharing of quote-unquote restricted material. So that actually seems to widen even the definition of what would previously be caught even under the Official Secrets Act, which was a pretty draconian law passed you know, originally like over 100 years ago. And um, if you were found guilty, the punishment, although I have to say there is some, a segment called the foreign power condition, that this doesn't apply to you unless the foreign power condition is satisfied. And this this crime and, and the definitions of the crime are in a section called espionage. So originally, when the bill was first revealed, you had a number of, of, of campaigns like a freedom of information campaign and an NGO, a whistleblower group called Protect. Uh, they came out like, oh, phew, we were expecting something far worse, like what I described in, in the dissenter piece and what you, you mentioned. But when I took a look at it, I saw, OK, so they're saying that this is just relates to espionage. Well, first of all, just so you know, the punishment if you are convicted, and this would be before a jury, at least for now, is either a, a fine, I believe it's an unlimited fine, or life in prison. Those are the two options for the judge, a fine or life imprisonment, right? It's not possible to have six months or one year, what have you. So if the judge determines that a fine is not good enough, all they have as the alternative option is a life sentence. Two, if you actually look at the foreign power condition, it's actually frighteningly easy for it to be satisfied. And I and I ended up having a Twitter exchange with with the Freedom of Information campaign. And I think they seem to have got a slightly better grasp of it now because their their briefings that they've sent to member of parliaments are, are more critical now, I think, than they were originally, where they seem to think, oh, this just has to deal with espionage, that you have to satisfy a foreign power condition for it to even apply to you. Basically, on, on various interpretations of the foreign power condition, if there's a foreign power that is involved in any part of the event of the obtaining or the possessing or the sharing of restricted material, boom, it's satisfied. OK, what if I work for an agency, a news agency that is like Sputnik or RT or any other 
that is funded in whole or in part by a foreign government, you know, like the BBC is massively funded, right? It's British state press. It seems that you could argue, a prosecutor could argue to a judge, hey, this needs to go, this should go before a jury because uh, uh, the foreign power condition is satisfied. I mean, something that easy. There's another section uh, in the foreign power condition which says it could also be satisfied if um, if it can it can be shown that, I suppose they have to convince the jury of this, that you intended a foreign power to benefit from the publication or, or sharing of a document, right? And uh, it also says that under those circumstances, uh, identifying the foreign power is not necessary. So the foreign power condition is met in relation to a person's conduct if the person intends the conduct in question to benefit a foreign power it's not necessary to identify a particular foreign power. So the prosecutor doesn't even have to say, you know, which foreign power. So let's say I write lots of articles, I don't know, critical of NATO, and I happen to get some leaked material, right, or find some leaked material online, and I write an article about it in my, you know, independent outlet or, or a small alternative outlet or whatever the case may be. Uh, it wouldn't have to be. It could be on BBC, right? But I'm just, they're less likely to be targeted, at least in the beginning. I, you know, I could be prosecuted under this. They could say, well, Mohammed has written a number of articles very critical of NATO. We think that this is intended uh, to benefit a foreign power. And uh, he's published rest restricted material, right, uh, without uh, authorization. Boom, that's either a fine or life in prison. And uh, it's, it's disturbing how little uh, debate has been in relation to this law thus far and the manner in which is being pushed through by members of all three major parties, the Liberal Democrats, New Labour and the Tory party. Yeah, I mean, what you're describing in terms of this uh, legislation is pretty wild to me, Muhammad. I mean, the idea that it doesn't even have to be proven uh, that, you know, this information or whatever was meant to benefit some government. It just has to somehow be shown that it does. I mean, it just shows about how, you know, these things are, are so manipulated. And I think it's the very reason why people who who care about a real free press, which we definitely do not have in the U.S. If we did, then this wouldn't even be uh, uh, an issue. And uh, it just sort of shows how these things are crafted, obviously, to attack people who are publishing things that are dissenting view. And, and it really feels as though this kind of suppression and censorship is really uh, uh, intensifying now. I mean, I feel like it's hard not to connect the case of Julian Assange to uh, the deplatforming of uh, outlets like RT and Sputnik and these other tech companies like PayPal and others attacking other um, um, alternative the platforms like Mint Press or Consortium News who don't even get any kind of government money. You know what I mean? And so it, it's just clear that real journalism is under threat. And it feels like we're reaching a point where the only uh, uh, media, I don't even want to call it journalism, but the only media that seems uh, to be allowed to exist is that which squares uh, with the Washington consensus. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, sometimes I hear people refer to, uh, you know, I remember when the Internet was much you know, much more free in terms of your ability to access information. And there was far less, you know, it appeared at least far less uh, algorithmic manipulation that would preference or uh, or censor, partially censor, downrank, if you like, uh, certain information sources. And I think what we're seeing is, you know, there was a time where you had loads of, of, of news outlets, you know, generations ago, 100, 200 years ago in Fleet Street here in London, loads of radical publishers and what have you. And then as, 
you know, costs uh, uh, went up and places got bought out and places got shut down. Unions got destroyed. Lots of these places would have been funded because how are you funding a printing press, right? It's, it's either, you know, a, a, an oligarch or plutocrat of some kind, right, will be founding these places because they've got the money to be able to do that or, you know, a collective, a community group, a, a, a labor union, etc. And uh, what we've seen is extensive levels of media consolidation over the last like 50, 60 years. And then comes the Internet, which opens up all these opportunities and all these, you know, outlets coming out. And uh, and then now we see the reaction there as well. I mean, I hear it often referred to as the, you know, the 90s and early 90s as the Wild West of the Internet. But that's not quite accurate. I mean, Wild West in what sense? Like people weren't being ethnically cleansed or genocided, right? It was what it was, was a much more egalitarian, much more level playing field in terms of sources of information. You were much more likely to find, I mean, Consortium News was one of their early websites to be started uh, by, you know, Robert Perry started it when he needed, wanted to have an avenue to be able to get out material, including on the Iran-Contra affair that he was working on when he couldn't get sufficient amounts in relation to like the AP and other established outlets. So yes, it's uh, whenever you have new opportunities and there are those who are concerned that alternative voices might be having an impact, we see a clapping down. So this isn't new. It's just that the medium itself is newer. You know, it's been around now a couple of decades. But the actual, the nature of like having a diverse media environment that then gets monopolized or oligopolized, if you like, and cracked down and then new spaces emerge and then they get cracked down. Uh, we can see that happening over the course of the last couple of hundred years. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Muhammad, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the results of the recent election in Colombia, and we're happy to be joined from Bogota by Sputnik News journalist and correspondent Wyatt Reed. Wyatt, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Sean and Jackie. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. And Wyatt, uh, some exciting news uh, emanating from the recent uh, election inside Colombia that happened this past weekend that uh, has seen the victory uh, of the left wing historic pact uh, coalition ticket led by Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez. And according to People's Dispatch, the Petro Marquez ticket received uh, 40 percent of the votes votes cast in the first round, which was about 10 points uh, less than what they needed for a, a first round victory as they faced off against their uh, main uh, rivals, uh, the right wing uh, Rodolfo Hernandez of the League of Anti-Corruption Governors Movement, uh, who received just under uh, 47 percent of the votes 
Creek count. And so you're there uh, on the ground, of course, in Bogota, Wyatt. I mean, it's honestly, it seems that uh, we've gotten into this pattern when we see these progressive or left-leaning tickets in Latin America almost uh, on the edge of our seats uh, or kind of nail-biting to see if there's going to be any kind of intervention from right-wing elements or elements supported by the United States or what have you. But uh, I'm curious uh, just what you've been seeing, what people have uh, been feeling there on the ground uh, following the election, and how have you seen things unfolding uh, since then? Well, the emotion, the excitement is extremely palpable at uh, the moment of the realization you know, I was outside yesterday, outside uh, this movie star arena where thousands of people came uh, to celebrate and to hear uh, Gustavo Petro give his victory speech. Uh, and it was an incredible scene. Uh, people screaming, crying, uh, just tears of joy coming out of basically everyone around me. Uh, people that never really thought that this moment would actually come or, you know, or, 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 or just are basically at this point have been convinced over and over again that there's always some final electoral trick, some, you know, other snake in the grass waiting to, to jump out and bite them at the last second. Finally, for the first time really ever in Colombia's history, that didn't happen. Um, and a left or center left candidate uh, finally uh, made it to the presidency. So it's, it's a historic day you know, really for, for the whole country. Um, and I had the honor of being able to speak um, with a woman named Yeni Alejandra Medina, who's the mother of a boy named Dylan Cruz, who was uh, murdered in 2019, just, just 18 years old, uh, while peacefully marching by the U.S.-funded ESMAD riot police. Um, in in Colombia, in Bogota, shot in the head uh, while while marching peacefully by all accounts, uh, you know, and I just ran into her uh, after she'd finished voting outside uh, Corferias, which is Bogota's biggest voting station. About half a million people were registered to vote. Um, and judging by the numbers of people I saw there yesterday, it seemed like pretty much all of them uh, made it into the polls. But I've managed to talk to her after after she came out um, and she she said, uh, you know, and I'm quoting here, Esmat shot him in the head for marching peacefully. And so now I'm voting and my vote is for Petro because he is the hope for us, the mothers of the victims of violence. So there's no more impunity in the cases of police violence against our kids. And also because of our hope for a better country where these attacks, these uh, murders of our children don't happen any longer. Uh, and then I had the honor uh, yesterday, uh, last night, of watching as, as she made her way up during Petra's victory speech. Um, and he brought her before the crowd and, and interrupted his speech uh, and gave her the microphone so that she could she could explain, you know, what this moment meant. And she said, in the name of my son, Dylan, who was another victim of this country, in the name of all the victims of the false positives uh, those are the 10,000 plus uh, people who were murdered and then dressed up as guerrilla, as, as guerrilla fighters by by Colombian army and police who wanted to collect cash prizes. He said, in the name of the victims of all the false positives, all the victims of this government and those uh, governments before it, I raise my voice for my son so there will be justice. And I welcome the new president because the hope for justice for all of us 
is in you. Uh, she was talking to Petro. In you, hope lies for us, the poor, the needy. And she said, the black, the white, the rich, the poor, hope for all of us lies in you. Welcome to Colombia, to our new country, Mr. President. So, you know, I know there's uh, a lot of questions, especially given some of the criticisms that Petro has uh, made against countries like Venezuela uh, and Nicaragua. Some, uh, a lot of people, you know, kind of this willingness uh, from people ostensibly on the left to kind of boohoo this moment, to kind of poke holes and say, well, you know, he's not really a leftist. Uh, I think that's fair. Maybe he isn't really a leftist, but he's certainly not the alternative. He's certainly not uh, what people in Colombia have been dealing with uh, at the hands of the U.S. government uh, for lifetimes, for generations. So I think that in and of itself, uh, really the reaction uh, from the mother of Dylan Cruz spoke uh, a lot louder to me than uh, many of the criticisms, uh, the what, you know, the sort of possibilities, this hypothetical stuff. I think uh, the people of Colombia recognize this for the uh, immense victory it is for working people. Yeah, definitely. And, and you noted, Wyatt, uh, about just the, the excitement and the emotion that so many people were experiencing as a result of this um, election. And, and I have to ask, well, what have conditions been like in Colombia to elicit that kind of response? I mean, we know that um, uh, this uh, electoral victory uh, 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 seems to like it'll mark a serious shift from the administration of uh, Ivan Duque, uh, who's been president of Colombia for some years very close to the United States and things like that. And so, you know, basically it feels like Colombia may be uh, 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 really making a, a real turn away from its sort of long night of uh, neoliberalism and maybe heading down a different path. But, you know, what is sort of the political and perhaps even the historical context around sort of the modern history of Colombia that makes uh, this kind of electoral victory so uh, relevant? Colombia has been for many decades now effectively a neo-colony of U.S. imperialism. That relationship uh, has existed throughout the drug wars, throughout the billions of dollars that have been pumped into Colombia under things like President Biden's Plan Colombia, uh, which distributed billions of dollars uh, to a notoriously corrupt and violent military and police force uh, in exchange for uh, unloading chemicals like glyphosate, uh, really t terrible chemicals for people's bodies all over the country, uh, wreaking havoc on the environment and then wreaking havoc on people's bodies. This is why this uh, election slogan, slogan of, of uh, uh, slogans urging social justice, environmental justice uh, has resonated so strongly here in Colombia, uh, because we're really talking about a neoliberal regime that's been at war with the people and the planet uh, for decades now. Um, so uh, the, the introduction of a new government uh, is something that that really uh, Colombians of all stripes have have been calling for. Uh, even the right wing was effectively forced to rally behind this uh, very strange and not terribly uh, polished or marketable candidate, Rodolfo Hernandez, 
uh, really just because he was the only one that could conceivably be portrayed as somehow anti-establishment or a populist. Uh, so there's widespread uh, widespread uh, rejection of the sort of business as usual in Colombia, and that was a bipartisan, you know, very broad sentiment uh, that people had different ways of tapping into. And of course, uh, Petro was simply more effective. He represented a much more meaningful and a much more real alternative to a lot of people uh, because he kind of walks the walk, right? And he's faced historically pushback from these same forces. When he was the mayor of Bogota, he was effectively cooed uh, out of power briefly and even had to leave the country uh, for a period of time, uh, basically because somebody managed to you know, in the sort of Lula da Silva way of of really turning some small incident to some massive incident of corruption. Uh, that was kind of what happened in the case of Petro when a garbage worker strike was turned into somehow a massive referendum on his on his performance. And he was basically forced out of office briefly. Uh, that kind of trick that those kinds of uh, policies they are used to by now. Um, so I think they knew uh, in this second round that, that there were going to be a lot of attacks, that they were going to be pretty much pure, dirty politics, that really the opposition didn't have a lot more to offer. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, I think Colombian voters saw through this kind of facade of anti, anti-establishment, so-called right populism, uh, and especially, uh, especially the women voters of Colombia. Uh, you know, Hernandez is uh, notoriously misogynistic. Uh, he, on the eve of of the vote, a video surfaced in which uh, Hernandez is on a on a massive luxury yacht, um, and he's he is consorting and leaning in and trying to kiss women one third of his age who are, you know, exotic dancers. Uh, so this kind of, this kind of, you know, and I talked yesterday to a, a mother and child voter, um, and, and this kind of image that Hernandez offered for the future, uh, for, for her daughter, uh, that was not an appealing one for a lot of, of Colombian women. And frankly, for a lot of Colombian men as well. Uh, so really, I think you kind of got two sort of, uh, possibilities here. You had Rodolfo Hernandez representing, in many ways, the past, Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez representing the future. And I think it's no surprise then that Colombians voted the way they did. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of the corruption and uh, the issues uh, that beset the Duque uh, uh, administration, he's leaving with an 80 percent disapproval rating. And that's largely, of course, attributed to uh, his administration's gross mismanagement of the COVID-19 pandemic, along with the uh, unprecedented violence that uh, he uh, rained upon the protesters, particularly uh, the working class 
amongst the poor and specifically uh, Afro-Colombian people throughout the country, Election Day was marked with a lot of irregularities throughout the campaign. There was uh, violence uh, committed against uh, the campaigns of the Pacto Historico. So what was Election Day itself for the second round? What was that like? Were there more irregularities? And, and you know, what was there that sense of intimidation that we saw being reported in the early uh, days of, uh, of of the election? So I'm in I'm in Bogota. So I will say, you know, this is the capital city. It's where you're probably least likely to see some of the the more intense electoral violence uh, just because there's more of a spotlight on things. Uh, Now, where there is violence, where there was violence, more concentrated uh, in the city of Cali, um, in the the Cauca region, where there is less of uh, legal infrastructure, you have more sort of paramilitaries, you have more of an ability for those with money to kind of do whatever they want, frankly. And so that, you know, that did happen. Luckily, I don't think that that was really the theme of the day. Uh, I think that, that that with all of the sort of international pressure, with all of the eyes on Colombia, um, and really just the, the, the overwhelming popular support uh, for Petro, I think on some level probably a decision was made that uh, if if we try to steal this election, it's going to be a little bit too obvious, um, and it may leave us even weaker in the long run. Um, but you know, obviously, that's all speculation. But I mean, just just talking about you know, and the conditions in Colombia, just talking to people on the street or cab drivers, you get a sense for the kind of suffering that ordinary people are going through. Uh, one person told me. You know, years in the, in recent years, uh, a pound of potatoes cost about five cents, and now it costs a dollar. Um, and this just means that basically no one has potatoes. I was wandering around with a friend who wanted to order a potato dish, and we went to maybe seven or eight restaurants. No one has potatoes because they're just too expensive. And this is a staple food of the Colombian diet. People eat potatoes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but they just can't afford it because of uh, this massive economic mishandling and corruption. Um, and that's and that's something that Petro has campaigned super hard against. Uh, Marquez has campaigned super hard against. That was a big theme of the victory speech as an end to this endless corruption, to the, to the nepotism that has characterized Colombian politics for decades now. Uh, that is a really, really strong rallying cry that resonates with a lot of people. Uh, because everybody has had to deal with the corruption or has had to deal with getting extorted by the police. Uh, and it's it's uh, the kind of thing that uh, it's not going to end overnight, right? And we know that from the success stories that we've seen, uh, where we've seen, you know, countries, Bolivia, Honduras, managed to restore their democracy through democratic means. Uh, and we know that overnight things don't change. The same people are still working many of the same jobs. But uh, what has changed is that there is a new executive. Um, the 
the priorities are changing. We know there will be a new relationship with Venezuela. It's not clear yet to what extent Colombia will stop being effectively a U.S. military base, uh, because that is an extremely politically uh, thorny issue to deal with, as the Hondurans know, too. Um, but uh, just the matter of fact that there is a left-leaning government means, you know, on some level, uh, it's it's kind of an existential threat to these right-wing paramilitaries that run a lot of the border areas, you know, to have their funds being cut off, to have their political support dry up, that uh, will do a lot to end the kind of violence that has plagued those border regions for so long. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, just just in terms of, of what this this kind of meant for for Colombians and and how people view it going forward, I think it's uh, it's pretty impossible to overstate the feeling right now. But but uh, his uh, Petro's family member who was speaking last night made made the good point that um, it's not this isn't the end, right? This is the beginning. This is finally Colombians uh, on the left, Colombians from the working class have a chance to have a say in their own destiny. And uh, now is their their chance to to seize it. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Wyatt, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're discussing the real history and ongoing importance of Juneteenth. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Nino Brown, an organizer with the Boston Jericho Movement. Nino, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Nino, today marks the second annual public Juneteenth holiday, uh, which was recently made a federal holiday to commemorate June 19th, 1865, when enslaved black folks uh, in Texas, basically uh, through Union troops, had their uh, uh, freedom sort of uh, confirmed in a way uh, they were aware of it. And that's really what I wanted to try to get to today, because because I feel like there's layers of uh, mythology and misunderstanding about uh, just what happened on Juneteenth, Nino. And so I was hoping you could help break that down in terms of not only what the real history is behind Juneteenth, but why it continues to be relevant in terms of the black liberation struggle here in the 21st century. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, one, now that Juneteenth is a national and federally recognized holiday, uh, that in and of itself is a myth, uh, in a sense, because, you know, states are choosing whether or not to celebrate, choosing whether or not to uh, pay their employees, um, to have time off. Um, you know, and some, of these, some of these are the same states, you know, that celebrate Confederate holidays or celebrate the, the, the Confederacy and their victories. Um, so <clears throat> even on the face of it, there's a bit of myth-busting just from 
what's recently transpired, it becoming a quote unquote federally recognized holiday. But more to the actual, you know, history, obviously June nineteenth, eighteen sixty five, uh, you know, Union troops arrived in Galveston, Texas, and I think it's important that we you know, name it that it was in Texas. It wasn't just, you know, all across the country or particular, uh, just generalized, you know, ignorance. It was in Texas where slave masters felt that they could hold out from, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, the uh, General Order Number 3, which, you know, stated that the people of Texas uh, have to abide by, you know, the freedom of of enslaved African people, enslaved peoples. Um, and, you know, that was, that freedom was won at the tip of a gun, right? Because the news was, well, the, the slave masters and their loyalists were well aware for years, you know, from the Emancipation Proclamation until uh, June 19th, but they chose to really exploit, super exploit and drain every single last drop of labor out of their enslaved black people that they could. Uh, and that's why they held out until the Union Army, you know, came in with about 2,000 troops and at gunpoint forced these slave masters to finally relinquish uh, slavery. Yeah, and there is uh, uh, always uh, in this history that we are not going to get from, you know, the state commemorating uh, the history. There's always a, a paper trail, if you will, of how we, our our uh, ancestors, really did free themselves. There is a statement from uh, a formerly enslaved man, Felix Haywood, who is documented as saying at the time, quote, quote, we knowed what was going on in the war all the time. We all felt like heroes and nobody had made us that way but ourselves. So the ending of slavery was not something that was to be decreed or proclaimed. It really was seized uh from the clutches of the slave owners by those who were enslaved fighting for their own liberation. But even with General Order Number 3, uh, there was language in that decree that I think set the stage for the way uh, we still experienced a form of enslavement, certainly a continued oppression uh, that I think kind of gave us a precursor to what was to come. So what was really said, uh, announced in that general order number three that we should pay attention to, that we're not told about, that's very, very important in the history of Juneteenth and in the history of uh, struggle for liberation for African people? I mean, I think one of the key things to pay attention in that general order is, you know, that it claimed that there was supposed to be, you know, absolute equality of personal, personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. And to this day, we see that that absolute equality of personal rights and property between former masters and slaves does not exist. If anything, uh, African-Americans are in a deeper bind than, you know, uh, at the end of, of uh, uh, enslavement, the end of chattel enslavement in this country. Of course, afterwards, you know, there was the 12 years of Reconstruction where, you know, black historian W.E.B. Du Bois said that uh, in the sun for a second and then, you know, turned with darkness uh, thereafter the reconstruction period ended. And, you know, those 12 years, I think, uh, are kind of an addendum to Juneteenth, right? Uh, 
uh, demonstrating that you know under black political power, uh, the Reconstruction governments were able to create public institutions like public education, the Freedmen's Bureau, to get rid of the uh, strictures on uh, owning land in order to become a, a voting member of society. Things that really benefited uh, the black working class, but all of society generally. Um, and in that, you know, we see that push, that impulse for, uh, you know, broad social justice, broad uh, political and economic uh, and land justice that was washed away, right? So as we celebrate Juneteenth, we have to remember that this was a political and social movement to destroy chattel slavery and all of its vestiges and to create in this country some type of, you know, functional multinational democracy, um, which, as I said, you know, only lasted about 12 years due to the compromise of 1878, where the North and South kind of kissed and made up over the lives of black people. Um, you know, today where we see Juneteenth being, you know, bandied about by corporations, Walmart, uh, Apple, you name it, uh, the, the commercialization of it has come extensively, rapidly, very rapidly uh, after it was, you know, uh, uh, implemented because of the 2020 rebellions, because of these massive 35 million rebellions and uh, 60, you know, people protested in 60 different countries all over the world. This was a measure to co-opt and to pacify the black revolutionary movement and black radical struggle in this country um, by just commercializing it. But I think what we have to take away is that this was a profound social, political, economic, revolutionary movement uh, that uh, started from June 19th and ended in, you know, uh, 1878 with the end of Reconstruction. And out of that is where we can find the kernels for a future multinational uh, revolutionary movement that we have to build in this country today. Yeah, definitely. And I think that point is really uh, important, Nino, because in the same way that those Africans in Texas were aware that they were, in fact, free, and it was just an issue of the situation being enforced, and also uh, the fact of the historical backdrop of how uh, black people entering uh, uh, the Civil War, fighting for their own freedom, uh, uh, simply had to be you know, enforced. It was something that was uh, basically already a reality. I mean, I think that directly connects to when we talk about the the black liberation struggle today as we have that same consciousness of uh, oppression under this capitalist system. And as such, it's important that, you know, we continue to highlight um, the revolutionary character of Juneteenth and that legacy of struggle as we see these entirely predictable uh, incidents of, you know, uh, uh, capitalist commodification. Yeah, I definitely agree 100 percent. I mean, I think one of the main things that we can lift up today uh, amidst all the commercialization, is actually existing contemporary black struggle, right? We see that workers in Bessemer, Alabama, you know, uh, are fighting for uh, a union. And they were initially inspired by the anti-racist rebellions and the larger, you know, uh, for Black Lives Matter movement uh, to fight for, you know, not just racial equality on the job, but to fight for economic equality on the job as well. Right, so you're seeing kind of the the inverse relationship where an outside of work event or politics influences workers' struggles, you know, which, in my opinion, broadens the scope of what is possible. It's no longer just we're fighting for wages, but we're fighting for racial uh, justice and racial uh, racial uh, uh, fighting against racial inequality. Right, we also see you know the continued fight of uh, uh, to abolish the police and abolish prisons. Right which is, you know, I mean, 
directly related to the abolitionist movement uh, that ended slavery, right? It was a movement to abolish chattel slavery, to abolish uh, the chain gang system. And these are systems that still have strong hold on American political economy today. We see that, you know, I think it's almost $11 billion of goods are produced by prisoners, right? And we have at least 1 million black men in prison today, today, and more broadly, about 7 million under state super surveillance. Uh, many of these are black people. Many of them are descendants of the same uh, people who fought to who fought to free themselves, and the reason why we celebrate Juneteenth. So, you know, as we know, history is not something that has happened in the past, but it lives with us to this day. And I think what we can and must do is uplift the contemporary struggles of black uh, working class people fighting for their own liberation, uh, free from you know Democrat or Republican uh, directives and, and influences, uh, but really you know truly independent. Uh, class struggle that they're waging. Yeah, totally. And I mean, within that realm, it's just yet another reminder about how, you know, the black liberation struggle, you know, there's always been that kind of direct involvement. It was not a piece of paper that freed black folks. It was not, you know, a white man riding up on a horse uh, reading this a declaration. It was we ourselves uh, that freed uh, black folks from the formal bonds of slavery. And I think that this is the kind of uh, fight back and level of organization that we should aspire to as our our struggle continues. Well, we thank you so much, Nino, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, June 20th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C., you can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.Mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 13 90 a.m. in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure live on Rumble right now. Rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it. We want to hear from you. 
We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Rachel Hugh, an organizer and co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. Absolutely. And Rachel, this past weekend, thousands of people from across the United States descended upon uh, Washington, D.C. to take part in the Poor People's Campaign, uh, Poor People's and Low Wage Workers Assembly uh, that took place to address a number of issues that are pressing for poor and working people in the U.S. at this time. And I mean, it's completely appropriate and actually, I think, uh, pretty important that uh, this sort of gathering happen as we see conditions for poor and working people in the U.S. continuing to deteriorate and really standing, I think, to get quite worse. And I mean, just uh, last month, there was a report that noted that uh, 573 new billionaires have been uh, created since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, which is approximately one billionaire every 30 hours. Uh, There's an estimated 263 million people that are expected to, quote, crash into extreme poverty this year or a rate of about one million people every 33 hours. And so it feels like the uh, uh, the contradictions of capitalism are only sharpening. And what I really appreciated about um, the assembly is I mean, just the energy that people brought. I mean, it was just clear that people were very aware of uh, uh, why they were there and of the importance of the event and why it was important for poor working people and uh, uh, the organizations uh, through which they feel their ranks uh, be involved. And I know you had an opportunity to be there as well, Rachel. So I'm just curious, not only your thoughts on uh, this specific event. But I mean, what do you think it means in terms of how we move forward for building this kind of mass working class movement that we know is necessary? Certainly, Sean. I mean, it was incredible to see, I mean, thousands. I was able to get up to the media booth area in the front and get a good look at really how far back really the crowd went. And I was just impressed to see just the sheer numbers of people that came out. It was incredibly powerful for a variety of reasons. I mean, having people chant that, you know, this doesn't have to be it. It doesn't, we don't have to accept things the way that they are. And saying slogans like fight poverty, not the poor, and just really feeling within that crowd, the power of poor and working people to assemble, to come together and to demand not just what we deserve, but also demand a respect of our dignity. I think the, the theme that was woven a lot throughout the day, which really stuck with me, was that call for poor people and people, low income people to live a life of dignity. And I think that there's really something to me so profound about that call, because it is so true that we are forced right now into to a situation where people all across the country, 140 million people live in poverty in the United States, and everything about that existence is so profoundly undignified. All the ways in which you're treated by society, the ways in which you know you're you're just completely cast aside, derided, dismissed, treated as if everything that you could possibly want is just because you're lazy. I mean, it's just it's outrageous to really think about that. So I found that that kind of sub theme of the day really stuck with me. And a lot of the speakers too, I mean, we saw 
not just Reverend Barber speak and some of the other great organizers with the Poor People's Campaign, but there was even a caravan that came in from Los Angeles, which was really impressive to me. They had left Tuesday and arrived for the day of, you know, it was just crazy to me to see all, from Tuesday all the way to Saturday. They, they traveled as far as they could to share the message of what they've been fighting for, for immigrants' rights in Los Angeles, as well as fighting for just the right to a job, the right to a home, the right to health care, these basic needs. So I was just really moved by the statements of workers and the people that came so far to, to be there in Washington. So that way Congress could really hear. And that was a big part of the action. You could tell, you know, it was really about showing Congress, which was right behind the stage. If you looked at the stage and you looked right behind, you could see the Capitol building and you could really see that the, the emphasis was to bring to Congress. Congress's doorstep, the people, that the people are going to be here and they're not going anywhere. And there was people with shirts from West Virginia, people that came from North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama. People came from all over the place to, to, to descend upon Washington. And I think that that message was heard loud and clear. And so to, to answer your second part of the question of what this means for class consciousness and where we go next, I mean, without a doubt, throughout the crowd, there, there were many socialist organizations. I know I was out there doing outreach for sure, pushing for, for really a socialist future. And I think that that, to me, was amazing to see just how people so readily were hungry for that idea. You know, they were just so open to the idea of building a socialist movement, the right to a job, the right to a home, the right to health care, the right to the basic needs that everyday working people need. It was just like a no-brainer amongst this crowd of people. And that was, to me, a, a huge shift. You know, I've been a socialist organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation, you know, for a very long time. And it's really crazy to me to think about years ago when we do outreach and just people were just absolutely not hearing it. I think the moment has changed so much, both in the conditions of what people are dealing with, the absolute outrageousness, as you spoke to, of the billionaires produced during the pandemic and how conditions are worsening for us as everyday people. Inflation, I mean, we're on the precipice of, of major economic collapse. I just think people are in a place where we need to look out and find practical solutions. And socialism offers that. So to me, I think the shift in class consciousness that has opened up a very important door for us, you know, as organizers and open important door for us, even as people who anyone who's a justice lover, who cares about having a, a future where people can eat, where people can have basic needs met. I really believe that there's a new leaf being turned over where we're seeing people really asking those questions of, of how we build from here, where do we go from here, and that we need so much more than we are being given. And that's why I think that dignity theme to me stuck with me, because it isn't always about how bad things get. It's about whether or not people feel that they deserve more. And I think that gathering really pushed the idea that we deserve so much more. And people are feeling that and they're hungry for something new. And that thing that they're hungry for is the socialist program, really is this idea of what society could be. And so that's kind of my, my reflections on that and what this means for us. So in the little bit of time I was out there Saturday, because I didn't stay for the whole uh, rally, I did talk to a couple of people who hadn't thought about the connections between, you know, needing to change this economic system, certainly away from capitalism. And they were seemed to be, you know, clearly more open to considering socialism and realizing, OK, it's not the evil thing that, you know, their parents and grandparents claimed it was. But they're also 
haven't they also didn't seem to have a really clear understanding of the connection between the need to also end war and war spending in particular and the connections between that. And I think that bringing up the fact that this government, uh, the Biden administration, has sent $54 billion to Ukraine and none of that money was given to the poor and all of it could have alleviated so many of the problems that the poor experience in this country. So do you see this uh, uh, ability to move people toward a socialist solution that's clearly needed is also the inroad to talk to people about ending war funding and ending war. Certainly. And I mean, the Poor People's Campaign particularly, it comes out of the legacy of Martin Luther King. And, and I think that it's so important what you're saying, Jackie, about bringing up and talking about this connection between poverty and war in the United States. And Martin Luther King saw that himself. And that's why I think it is so profound, because, you know, the, the idea of ending war, ending the U.S. military machine and, you know, feed feed the poor, not go to war. I mean, there was so much of that sloganeering in the crowd. There were some incredible signs and different folks that came out pushing that and talking about that speakers spoke to it as well, that they have money, you know, as Tupac said, they have money for war, but they can't feed the poor. It's just so, so real and so true. And I think that people, when they were out there and seeing that, it became really in their face in a way to see anti-war activists out talking about how these issues profoundly and deeply connect. But without a doubt, I mean, the kind of money in the U.S. that's wasted on the military budget is just, it's astounding in some ways to just think how much that money could go towards the kind of programs that we need. Because every couple of years, they tell us there's just, there's no money. We don't have money. There's nothing that we can do. These programs need to get cut. We need to raise taxes on everyday people, not on billionaires. And that's what we see over and over again. And so I think it's really, to me, crazy to think about within this context, the fact that what you're talking about, how they've given so much money to Ukraine, and it's not for the refugees of Ukraine. It's for the it's it's for military weaponry in Ukraine. So I just think that when we're talking about the socialist future that we want, it has to be with the understanding that the U.S. military is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. The United States is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. Period, and that all of our resources, all of our tax dollars, all that we are in society is wasted in trillions of of dollars that's given to the Pentagon to, to do things like build, I, I mean, the most ridiculous planes that don't even work. I mean, there's so many examples even of just where the money goes and it doesn't even go towards what they claim it goes towards. I mean, they literally lose you know millions of dollars. I mean, what other organization in society can lose millions of dollars and just be unaccountable to that? It's outrageous, but I could go on, but I think that it's an important thing to tie those things together. And it, it really does say to me, and I want to share this as a story as well, I was recently at the, the People's Summit, which was a gathering in Los Angeles against Biden, who had come to town to call, you know, all these people from around the Americas, all the different diplomats and heads of state from around the Americas to talk about, quote unquote, democracy in the Americas. But, you know, Mexico decided not to go. I mean, there's a lot of boycotts. There was a lot of pressure. There was interruptions. It was an amazing kind of event to see what happened in the pushback against the Summit of the Americas. But at the People's Summit, there was actually something that really stuck with me, a couple of different things. But one thing in particular, which was that there was the interweaving of, of the fight against U.S. militarism and U.S. intervention in Latin America and more more 
broadly, like all across the world. But that fight was being deeply tied to, to local issues of Los Angeles healthcare access. I mean, there is so many ways in which these things can be profoundly intertwined. And I think that people are seeing that. People are starting to see the need to move to something more. I know at the People Summit, Deetra Jackson, who is the executive director of the Black Youth Project 100, so BYP 100, she's executive director. She actually announced at the People Summit that BYP 100 is going to move from a black feminist organization to a black queer feminist organization to a socialist, explicitly socialist organization. And to me, that was huge. It just represented so much of what we're talking about, even in the Poor People's Campaign event that happened, this, this shift in consciousness towards recognizing that it isn't just enough. And that's what she even said. It isn't enough to fight for just black queer feminism. We have to fight for something more. We have to fight for socialism. And so to me, I think that moment of seeing other activists, other people in this movement and other folks who've been thinking about how to change the world that we live in, to see them adopting a socialist framework and pushing for a socialist framework that is also explicitly an anti-imperialist framework, one that stands against war and militarism and, and the kind of violence that the United States does around the globe, that kind of a program being adopted in this place and space, it means so much. So I think, it, to me, it gives me a lot of hope about where we're headed, that everyday people are seeing those connections, they're seeing those links, and organizers are too. And so we are going to be building a much stronger movement as we go forward. Yeah, and I think you're so right when you talk about <clears throat> the uh, how the tide is turning in terms of the sentiment around socialism in the United States, which is saying a lot. I think we should be clear on why that is so noteworthy when you consider that anti-communism, anti-socialism, just this this uh, uh, years running all out ideological and propagandistic assault on anything uh, that really challenges uh, uh, this uh, white supremacist capitalist system. So that's uh, noteworthy in and of itself. But even when we're talking about this issue of money that's spent on war, I mean, we're having this conversation just a few days after the Senate Armed Services Committee endorsed a $45 billion increase to uh, Biden's military spending plan. That's $45 billion additional dollars on top of this already, you know, uh, bloated, swollen, uh, gargantuan war budget. They call it a defense budget, but we know that it's um, really a, a, a war budget. And so, you know, just having a look at how it all played out and we see these people's gatherings like the People's uh, Summit for Democracy and uh, uh, the Poor People's Campaign, uh, Poor and Low Wage Workers uh, Assembly. You know, to me, I, it's important to do this, Rachel, because, you know, um, really stimulating Working class consciousness and stimulating socialist consciousness in the United States at this juncture is just so, so, so important. Because as we often point out in the show, the capitalist class that we know has to be uh, defeated and removed from power um, is highly class conscious and highly centralized and highly organized. And I just often like to point out the fact that really, no matter how bad things get, no matter how um, sharp contradictions may become, that that nascent consciousness will just remain as potential 
if organizers don't sort of directly intervene uh, to really do the the kind of organizing and political education and things that we know is needed to really uh, uh, build this kind of movement. And so, uh, in truth, when we look at some of the uh, broader trends that are happening and some of the events that are emerging of them out of an event, uh, Rachel, it just seems clear that, you know, this kind of working class uh, uh, consciousness is going to be an an important step in building, you know, working class unity and solidarity for, you know, constructing the kind of effort that we know we need. Certainly, Sean. And one of the things too to to add on to another gathering, which is kind of funny to think about. It's been quite a couple of weeks for me. My my partner, actually, my husband, he is the president of his union um, here in New York and Ayla. It's about 250 folks in his particular union. It's an interesting formation. He was also recently at Labor Notes, and Labor Notes just took place literally over this past weekend, which is a gathering of labor organizers across the country in the grassroots. And it's a really exciting thing thing for sure in the labor movement. A lot of folks do attend, but I I wanted to bring this up because in speaking about this consciousness shift, I think the other thing that has been so significant and certainly noted at Labor Notes as well is that there has been a mass increase in unionization and consciousness around the need to have a union. It's like the rebirth of the labor movement has been happening. It hasn't stopped since Striketober of last year. I mean, it has just kept going. I mean, a year ago, there was zero Starbucks unions across the country or unionized Starbucks shops. And now there's like over 150 shops that have a union in Starbucks. And some of the young people actually spoke at the at Labor Notes about unionizing Starbucks. And it was really profound just because they were saying things like there was this one quote of this young woman speaking about, you know, we, we didn't do anything new. We, we're not doing anything new. This isn't something that is suddenly, you know, we're pulling out of thin air. We're just doing what has historically always been done in this country. And that was just really interesting to me to see how young people today and people in general, not just young people, are, are tying together the legacy of struggle in this country and what's been done before into where we need to go next. And labor has been absolutely that. I mean, just recently, I don't know if you saw this, but it's an incredible thing to see that unions actually won the right to represent workers at an Apple store for the first time ever. And this happened in Townsend, Maryland. And they voted to form the first ever labor union at Apple. And this just mind-blowing. I mean, this comes on the heels of Amazon unionizing in April. I mean, it's a real David and Goliath situation to think about these average people, you know, just coming together at an airhouse, at an Amazon warehouse and spitting in the face of Jeff Bezos, the, the, the billionaire who truly represents everything wrong with this country and everything wrong with capitalism at this moment, and, and to have them win. I mean, these things are not minute. They build on each other. And I think if there's one place for us to look right now in terms of, of kind of rapidly developing consciousness, it is around labor. I mean, I think to in some ways, it's kind of like I was thinking about making this TikTok account or something. It'd be kind of fun um, with like the handle being unionized with like a capital Z, right? It's like, you know, Gen Z. It's just, I don't know. It was just a funny thought I was having about building this idea of, of, of of new consciousness and excitement around labor, but in some ways it's become really trendy. I I don't know how else to describe it. People talk about it online because, you know, young people especially are looking out in the world and they're seeing that the ocean is at their doorstep. They're seeing the right wing on the ascent. They're seeing Roe v. Wade being overturned. They're watching as gun violence continues to spiral out of control in the United States where we have these mass shootings like Buffalo and like what happened in Texas, one after the other after the other. But nonetheless, I think that people are, 
are having this response, which I've noticed pick up a lot more, which is, well, what can I do? And people are actually answering, well, at least you can, what you can do is start local, start with where you are, start a union. And I think that that to me and that movement and that momentum represents the fact that working class people, even when you're dealing with this deluge of just atrocious things from capitalism and atrocious things from the right wing, that there is a response that people have and they are starting local. And we are seeing more wins for the working class in the last two years than we've seen in the last decade around labor. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Rachel Hugh. And Rachel, in the same way that we're seeing all kinds of great organizing happening um, across the U.S., assemblies of poor and working people, uh, uh, international uh, meetings of uh, different people's social movements in uh, a resistance to the uh, exclusive and imperialist meetings like the um, Organization of American States a Summit of the Americas. But while all of that is going on, there's uh, also an effort to try to beat back not only these movements, but also trying to terrorize uh, a poor, working and oppressed people. And uh, we saw that recently when there was an attempt at this uh, white supremacist group. Uh, I mean, they call themselves white nationalists, but that's just, you know, another name for supremacists um, who are trying to disrupt a parade in a pride parade in Idaho and really disrupt, I think, is being too generous in terms of uh, what it appears they were really trying to do. And, uh, you know, it was 31 of them, and this was the group called Patriot Front that were uh, arrested, um, and a bunch of them were like in this uh, U-Haul when they were discovered. And according to uh, the police chief, quote, it is clear to us based on the gear that the individuals had with them, the stuff they had in their possession, the U-Haul with them, along with paperwork that was seized from them, that they came to riot downtown. And, you know, this is coming at the same time, Rachel, of course, where we're seeing, you know, uh, uh, trans people being attacked in public, uh, trans kids being attacked from the systemic level um, through all of this different ridiculous legislation and things that we're getting in the United States. That's happening as a result of this uh, uh, far right transphobic anti-LGBTQ campaign that is not being fought at all uh, by the Democrats. And so it really feels like the movement of the streets is really what's needed here. But I'm just sort of curious uh, your thoughts, Rachel, not only on this whole issue with Patriot Front in Idaho, but what do you what you think that means for our organizing as it's clear that these violent fascist elements are uh, uh, continuing to operate publicly and violently. Um, uh, Meanwhile, uh, the state, uh, for all of its power, are refusing to actually do anything about it. 
Yeah, Sean, I think it's infuriating to see that the right wing is able to amass in this way. I mean, I just so many levels here, but I'll start with this. I mean, the, the whole way that these people got caught, these 31 people who got arrested, the whole reason why they got arrested was because there was a tip from a local person who saw them getting into this U-Haul in a hotel, like armed to the teeth with their, their kind of crazy black shirts on, black masks on. I mean, it was absolutely intimidating. I can imagine if you're just somebody random at a hotel and you're seeing people all load up into a U-Haul that you, you kind of need to do something about it. So they called in a tip. This wasn't because the police were on top of this or they were monitoring this. No, it was because somebody called it in who was very concerned about what it was that they were doing. And some of the shirts that they were wearing said things like Reclaim America, which is just, you know, it just speaks so much to what is happening in relationship to the growing right and, and the incorporation of these ideas. I mean, it just sounds like another variation of Make America Great Again in so many ways. Reclaim America, to me, it also speaks to the fact that the right wing has been pushing this whole narrative around the fact that there's going to be, I forget the exact terminology they use, but essentially there's going to be more people of color in America than white people. So it's so obvious that these people are, are straight up white supremacists. And I think what's really frustrating too is that this group in particular, the Patriot Front, they're based out of Texas. And so they traveled from several different states to meet at this location at this hotel. And so they're going, they're on a little caravan collecting their people. And, and, and the fact that all of this can happen and there's paperwork and there's all of this information and the FBI is now supposedly involved in this case now, it just begs the question to me, why was the FBI not involved well in advance? I mean, Thomas Rousseau, who's one of the leaders of this group who was arrested, he actually also was part of leading the Unite the Right push in Charlottesville in 2017. And I think it's really important to bring that up because why is it that the FBI can know how dangerous these people are? They, the federal government can know what they have done in the past, where they have been, and the kind of violence that they have purveyed, and yet somehow there's not tabs. You know, they, they watch everything that the left wing in America does. They watch everything that the left does here, but they don't watch what the right is doing who have a known history of being involved in violence. I mean, Charlottesville was organized on discord channels. It was it was something that when we think about the, the mass surveillance apparatus of the state, they have every ability to watch how in Facebook groups these things percolate. I can tell you right now that these people wrote all of these things likely publicly in public forums or on discord servers or on really basic forms of communication. And, and, and those folks who were talking about it all planned for this attack on this pride in Idaho. They did this as part of a process process that was certainly without a doubt online. And it just makes me so enraged because this to me speaks to how deep the right-wing elements have gotten into the state here in the U.S. That, that, that really the FBI is, is for some reason turning its head, which is not for some reason, but it's turning its head against the right and just ignoring the fact that we have serious, serious, credible threats of domestic terrorism from the right and there's nothing being done about it. But to me, what it says for our movements is that we cannot rely not only on the state to protect us, but we cannot rely whatsoever on the Democratic Party or the liberal wing of, of the ruling class to do anything or intervene about this. The federal government could have stepped in at any moment, at any point, and really along the line of this whole situation, and they did not. And so that to me is like what we have to take away as a movement. The state will not protect us and the liberal wing of the, the ruling class parties, the Democratic Party, they are not going to do anything to stop the rise of the right. It has to be us. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you, you mentioned uh, a Patriot Front leader, 
Thomas Rousseau. And it's worth mentioning that originally Patriot Front was called Vanguard America. And they had to rebrand after Charlottesville because someone who who was seen in photographs with them, James Alex Fields, is the one that hit Heather Hayer with his car, killing her. So basically, because of this murder, uh, uh, Vanguard America had to rebrand in the Patriot Front. But obviously, they're engaging in the same sorts of action with the same sort of ideology. Uh, Jackie Luke Monk. To your point, Rachel, about how, you know, the FBI and and whatever uh, alphabet intelligence agencies exist and monitor folks, because, as you said, we on the left are monitored a lot. It's it. We should note that these people who are known to be white supremacists, who have a history of violence, uh, were apprehended with shields, shin guards and other riot gear with them. Now, this goes to the question of, you know, we're in this big debate in this country about gun control, but none of these people had an actual gun on them, but they had a whole lot of other equipment uh, that could be used as weapons and certainly indicated that they were uh, preparing for some type of violence or a fight. And they were just kind of allowed to just go on and gather together and amass uh, uh, their little weapons and in in their U-Haul in a small town, which it is said they chose this small town because they thought it would be more likely for them to get away with the violence in a smaller town. And honestly, had it not been for the one person who saw these people with their riot gear and their shields and shin guards uh, dressed, dressing like, you know, I guess some military unit or whatever, piling into the back of a U-Haul, calling the police and saying, hey, this looks awful suspicious, they would have gotten away with the violence they were planning. I mean, so I think that we, we really do have to be clear, Rachel, that we are not being, these people are being aided and abetted by the intelligence agencies. Mm. It's not that they don't know who they are and that they're violent and that they have amassed equipment to carry out violence. I I just can't believe that they're they're just completely clueless as to what's going on. And and the truth is we do need more people. We do need more people like the person who called the police, but also we need more people all the time, uh, particularly in our movements who are who are clear and trained on security. I always said that's such a weakness in some of the uh, some of our mobilizations that we're not as invested in. Who's watching our back while we're out there, you know, fighting for the rest of the rest of the uh, of of humanity, really? Certainly. I definitely agree, Jackie. I mean, the reality is fascists have a proclivity to violence. That's what they are. That's what they do. That's what their ideology is. It's to use violence without any restraint. And I think that it's going to be very challenging on the left dealing with that because you don't like that's not the worldview that we hold. That's not the way that we move in the world. That's not our desire. And yet we have the absolute right of self-defense. And I think that the more the right grows, the more the conversation around what the right of self-defense really is grows as well. 
And I want to also mention for this case, these people were charged ultimately with a misdemeanor, okay? A misdemeanor. What If they carried out the violence they intended, like, let's just imagine that. Let's walk through that scenario. This is a small town pride event in a, a middle of nowhere, Idaho, frankly. And what it is, is that it, it, we're going to have families. We're going to have young people. We're going to have people all coming out for an event that I, I've been to small town prides. Small town prides are like little booths. Sometimes people walk around, they get some food, they wear their rainbow. Maybe they march down the street. Maybe they don't because it's so small that they don't. They're usually young kids at these events. There's usually families at these events, especially in small places. It's not like the big party that it is in New York City or the big party that it is in Los Angeles. It's a, a, a very small town energy. If you have people with riot gear who are coming to an event like this, they're going to be absolutely brutalizing families, children, young people, and literally just across the spectrum, it is going to be widespread, horrific levels of violence. I am so glad to see that somebody intervened. And it does make me so angry about the kind of propaganda that we get, especially in New York. The If you see something, say something. I mean, that's like beat into us everywhere we go. But what are we seeing? We're, we're conditioned by the, by the media to imagine what criminality even looks like, that it's, you know, it's going to be the Muslim person who's the terrorist. It's going to be black and brown kids who are the criminals. And it's just so not true when we think about the real threats to our society right now. It is the ascent of the right, without a doubt. It's terrifying to think about just how severe and how serious the right is right now. I don't think, I think too often we see it kind of laughed off a little bit, like just sloughed off that, oh, you know, look at these crazy people from Texas. But, you know, speaking of Texas, I mean, Texas is is pushing forward for a referendum to secede from the United States. And a lot of people are laughing about it. Like I've seen even different news outlets saying that, oh, it's, a, it, you know, busting the myth that Texas can secede from the nation. This is a political move. This secession is a political move. And it's putting on the table a quite openly Christian fascist agenda. And so to me, connecting those dots that this group is from Texas and that Texas Republicans have come together to put forward on the table, the possibility of secession from the nation and the desire to overturn the Civil Rights Act. I mean, there's just so many levels of, like, we cannot laugh at the right wing. They're amassing their forces. They're they're smart with their ideology. They're smart with their intention. They're smart with their propaganda. The way they talk about white identity or white nationalism, all of that ways of speaking is to obscure and obfuscate what they are, and they're Nazis. And Nazism is not going to be solved by, you know, just looking around and twiddling our thumbs or waiting around for the state. That, that's just not how the right wing operates. It, it has to be us not only defending ourselves, but also actively going after the right. We, we really have to be uh, on top of it, talking about it, making sure people understand it, and, and most importantly, just taking it seriously. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I agree that it's pretty wild how uh, Patriot Front only got off with a misdemeanor. But, I mean, we also got to remember that, you know, Donald Trump, a sitting president, ordered uh, an armed fascist mob attack on the Capitol while they were confirming the uh, election. And the worst that happened to him was that he got his Twitter taken away. So, you know, when we talk about the refusal 
of this government to take uh, uh, encroaching, rising fascism seriously, well, that reaches all the way from, you know, the, the these ragtag bunches of uh, fascist-like Patriot Front and all the way up to the top to literally of uh, the presence of the United States. And that spells, I think, a very um, worrisome picture for uh, uh, the rest of us because it's true that they're not being uh, taken seriously and they never are. And I don't know what it is about uh, uh, liberals. They think that, you know, their presumed uh, intellectual superiority is somehow going to save them from getting a mud hole stomped in them. But I assure you that is not the case and you better hope that's the worst they do. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Rachel Hugh is here. And Rachel, I wanted to talk some more about this issue of uh, the GOP, uh, uh, you know, doing this vote to succeed from the U.S. in 2023. And, and I appreciate the point you're raising in that how, you know, liberal media and uh, liberals themselves are sort of poking fun at it because they're taking it literally. And I think you're correct in pointing out that, you know, actual succession is quite likely not the point, but actually more of an overall political thrust to uh, try to mainstream and legitimize these uh, 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 Christian evangelical far right type of politics and elements, or as Jackie calls them, uh, Christo fascist. You know what I mean? And I, I was thinking over the break, like, you know, I remember like liberals and, and, and the liberal media and, um, you know, uh, uh, pop culture platforms like the like Saturday Night Live or um, uh, The Daily Show, like the poke fun at George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush and Donald Trump, as if the things they do don't have deadly consequences for not only those of us in the United States or around the world. I mean, you know, I mean, even if we just look at Donald Trump, I mean, there's endless jokes and, and digs and things like that at Trump because, I mean, he's obviously like, you know, an open bigot, like a swaggering reality television star and and all these other things, just a blustering, bloviating, you know, uh, a sort of person. And yeah, he is all those things. And like, he beats you fair and square, like the Democrats. He was democratically elected president of this country, uh, despite uh, what they may say. And not only that, this same person has now been uh, rehabilitated because they refused to act in time um, after uh, uh, January 6th. And his entire, um, uh, you know, movement that he has with him, and I think it is proper to call them a movement, uh, uh, is still very much a factor. I mean, that's a part of why these things like with Patriot Front um, are happening and, and things like this. And so it's just so frustrating because there's such a lack of 
foresight or a lack of depth of critical analysis when we see these sorts of things. And so liberals think that they can just laugh it off or just, you know, point out how dumb it is as if that's going to make a difference. Now, that may um, uh, uh, assuage uh, the fears of people who, you know, already agree with them. I guarantee you it's doing nothing at all to actually stop the organizing efforts of these same elements. You know what I mean? And so here again, I really think it's going to take a people's movement to really stop uh, the rise of fascism because the liberal wing of the ruling class uh, refuses to take it seriously. And, you know, as listeners of the show may know from our, our past conversations with people like Dr. Gabriel Rockhill, I mean, oftentimes liberals sort of um, directly or indirectly contribute to the rise of fascism, even when it clearly poses a threat to them as well. But this, I think, brings us to a question, Rachel, about the class character of uh, fascism, which then uh, uh, I think highlights the importance of understanding the class character of the kind of movement that's needed to sort of finally and decisively uh, uh, defeat these reactionaries once and for all. Certainly, Sean. I mean, I, I think to, to speak first to this Texas secession thing, I think there's so much to go into just what they've put on the table politically, which I think is important. And a quick correction, it was actually the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that they are specifically looking to repeal. I mean, it, that's it, it's just mind boggling to me that they're trying to do this. But I, I think it's also important about the other elements of what they're putting on the table that, that we know what they are. I mean, they're trying to change the, the platform. The new Texas GOP platform is actually going to attempt to change the education system. So it focuses on and imparting essential academic knowledge, understanding, this is a quote, understanding why Texas and America are exceptional and have positively contributed to our world. And while doing so also offer enrichment subjects that bless students' lives. I mean, it is absolutely scary to think about this. They're also trying to get students to learn about the quote, humanity of the preborn child, which will include teachings that life begins at fertilization. And it also is going to prevent, of course, sex education, sexual health, or sexual choice or identity in any public schools in any grade whatsoever. So I just think it's really important to understand that they're trying to move the Overton window. And I, to me, the, the call to repeal the Voting Rights Act is, is that Overton window shifting. I mean, that is not something that you've seen mainstream Republicans openly saying that they want to repeal. You know that's what they've been wanting. You know they've been trying to undo all of the gains since the civil rights movement, but nobody has put that on the table thus far in that way and this this level, at this level, in this form. And so to me, we are going to be fighting a real serious fight on our hands because once it's out of the bag in the same way that the book, um, which I, I talk about a lot, written by Peter Brimlow, about um, Alien Nation in the 90s when this was written. This was written and it, it put on the table the idea, this, this hardcore right-wing idea of, of illegal aliens. I mean, this was not the way that people thought or talked before that. And so this, to me, feels a little bit like one of those moments where you're putting it on the table and who knows how much farther right the door has now swung open for people to call for more and more right-wing ideas ideas of rolling us back even further. And so I think it's important because what the liberals do is they, they keep chasing and they keep fighting in, in, in the tug of war. They just basically kind of give up and, and start walking along. And however far the right takes them, they'll walk with them and say, well, we have to make concessions if we want to have democracy in this country, concessions, concessions. But I, I think it's important for us to educate people and, and, and educate people, especially other people on the left as well. And anyone, our, our friends, our neighbors that, that 
that that's that there's no concessions that you can have with fascism. That's that's what we learned from from literally the Holocaust, that you cannot have concessions with fascism. It's not the nature of how it operates and works. And some of these ideas that are coming out uh, of this Texit, as they're calling it, they're calling it Texit, which is so frustrating. Um, actually, Representative Kyle Bitterman introduced a I, bill. I hate how catchy that is. Texit. Yeah, it's so catchy. I know. But you know what? But you know what, Rachel, the, yeah. the right is so good at that. They're very good at branding. They are so good at branding. They are so good at messaging. They're consistent in that messaging. And above all, else they fight for what it is they they said they're gonna do they do the things they say they're gonna do meanwhile the democrats do none of that they don't stand for anything they certainly don't fight for the things you think that they stand for and uh, uh they basically just lay back and let these things happen and uh more oftentimes than not or more concerned with quote-unquote uh uh bipartisanship than actually defeating these people who you know we're led to believe are like their mortal enemies and so it's just sort of another example of the complete lack of seriousness on the part of Democrats. No, it's so true. And the Texas slogan is just killing me. It's actually the slogan of the Texas nationalist movement, which is a movement. Oh, and wow. apparently the Texas nationalist movement website claims that almost half a million Texans support its work to make Texas an independent nation again. Again, I mean, there's just, I just, I can't. There's so many levels of this is insane. But yeah, I mean, whether or not this referendum succeeds is not the point. I mean, I think it just really isn't the point. I mean, even if they were to succeed in, like, to succeed in this secession, in terms of the vote, I mean, it, the Constitution is very clear. If there's anything that was made clear by the Civil War is that there is no right for any state to secede. But I, I just I think it's so right, Sean. We cannot we cannot sleep on these things and just let this kind of this normalcy bias. I, I think that's a big part of it. It's like a normalcy bias. I think the pandemic taught us that a lot of people fall prey to the normalcy bias that we, we just because we can't imagine it because it's so outlandish. It's easy to look the other Either way and just let it be funny, but it, it's really not. And it's really serious, especially with the overturn of Roe v. Wade. And, you know, if that comes down the pipeline, which could potentially be happening, you know, in the next few days, I mean, we it's really it's going to be a major fight. And, and the only thing, and I've been saying this about Roe v. Wade, and I'm curious what you guys think about this, but the only way that anyone right now in this moment can can find a way out. If they overturn Roe v. Wade, the only way out of the situation in terms of the Supreme Court that also is uh, apparently going to be attacking Miranda laws as well. I mean, there's just so many things to, to get into with the Supreme Court, but the only way to change the composition of the Supreme Court is to rewrite the Constitution. I mean, that's where we are. We are in a moment where we need revolution. We need an overhaul. We need a rewriting of the Constitution. It's not an exaggeration to say that. That's a practical reality. It's an interesting thing that you brought up because one of the so-called founder and founding fathers, I think it was Thomas Jefferson, actually said the Constitution should be re rewritten about every 10 years. Why? Because societies change. So this document that uh, we wrote, this is what his thinking was, this document that we wrote, you know, here back in, in, in way back then, you know, now in, in 10 years, society is going to be different. So some things shouldn't apply 
apply. And in a hundred years, society isn't going to be the same. So some things are not going to apply. So I think that the fact that, um, you know, some states like Texas are, you know, and, and other states have been calling, you know, for a constitutional convention or, you know, calling for uh, the issue of a constitutional crisis was raised in the last election and, and you know, all this kind of stuff. But I think it it raises the the issue of the hypocrisy of the right wing, particularly in this issue of the Constitution, in particular, first, because one of their, you know, beloved founding fathers actually said, yes, you, you do need to rewrite the Constitution um, every so often, quite regularly um, and update it as society uh, changes. And, and they don't want to do that unless, of course, they're talking about restricting people's rights then of course they want to do that. But then, you know, when you talk about uh, the fact that the Constitution has clear language about states seceding, how how come they're not paying any attention to that part of the Constitution? So, so it's like it's so easy for the Democrats to counter the right wing's constitutional arguments with the very document they claim that they revere so much. But I mean, the Democrats won't even do that easy. Alley oop. They won't even go to the very document that these folks claim they are doing all of these horrible things for or on behalf of and say, well, this is what your precious document actually says about what you're trying to do. And it's illegal under this document. And I, I just don't see, even if Texas does not succeed in seceding. I don't see the Democratic Party being able to or even willing to stop anything like Roe v. Wade being overturned in the near term uh, or even in the next uh, presidential election because they had a chance to do that, Rachel, back under Obama, and they they just kind of, you know, didn't. Didn't think it was important. So I, I agree with you. I, I think uh, we, we don't have any uh, support from the Democratic Party in addressing these things, but I don't see us being able to get them to, you know, have a constitutional convention either. No, for sure. They're not going to do anything. I mean, they could do it right now. If you want to stop the overturn of Roe v. Wade, I mean, I've been seeing all of these these articles come out about Biden's going to take all this executive order action. And like, it's just so infuriating because it's like, you know, what the Democratic Party could do right now, literally as we speak, is call a mass mobilization of the people around the country. They could do that. They have the power to do that. It's also not unheard of for political parties around the globe and around the world to call on their mass supporter base to come out in support of whatever it is that they're pushing for. This is not an unheard of concept or idea of what could be done. It's a choice that the Democrats are choosing, which is to already accept defeat. And the fact that the news cycle has already moved on to accept defeat and not, you know, say, well, you know, that we could we could do something. We just have to accept that the, the decision is going to come down and that now we got to think about the executive orders that Biden could put in, most of which would would not be held up in the court of law. I guess that's what the, he's going to do things. Supposedly, there's this whole debate about is just is it worth him doing things that legally won't hold weight just for the symbolic nature of it? And I was like, we don't need symbolism. We need serious, real, meaningful protections. And so it's just it's infuriating because the Democratic Party, with every single turn, decided not to do anything about women's rights, decided not to do anything about LGBTQ rights, which are all 
also on the chopping block. I mean, in every single way, shape and form, they're their main base and their main push around identity and inclusion and representation, which has been their talking points for the last you know five to 10 years, at least. They've done nothing to really deliver on any of that for their base. And if we see the Voting Rights Act overturned, I mean, it's just there's so many levels of, of my God, how much further right can it get before we realize that the Democratic Party has to be fully abandoned, I mean, in every way, shape and form. But I just think and my final thoughts on this are that it, it just, you know, the idea of socialism, the idea of building a socialist party, building a socialist revolution, it's not something that we say just to say it. It's not just, oh, you know, well, this is an idea that I have because I think it's cool. It's, it's a practical solution to the reality that we're facing. There is no other way out of this crisis. There's no other way to defend women's rights, to defend LGBTQ rights, to defend the, the rights of black people in America. I mean, there is no other way unless we fundamentally change the foundations, the bones of the society that we live in. They've done it in Chile. They've, re, they've worked on building a people's movement to rewrite their constitution, which was the same as it was during a fascist Pinochet. They haven't changed it since then. It's not impossible. I mean, they overthrew their dictator in the Arab Spring. But the question is, where do we go next? You know, it's so important to think about what we're fighting for. And, and socialism provides a meaningful, actual plan for both the economy, for society, for the environment. I mean, it, it's just, it, it really provides a, a blueprint for what we can have. It's not impossible. It's not by any stretch of the imagination, something that is out of, out of the world, out of the realm of what can happen for society. Society, we just have to fight for it. So, I mean, that's just what I've been thinking about a lot. Like, this is practical. These are practical solutions. They're not pie in the sky ideas. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing when you note how, you know, um, so many politicians in this country basically refuse to like mobilize support for, you know, something progressive or beneficial for the masses of poor working and um, oppressed people, even though it, it's something that's generally, excuse me done all the time. I mean, Donald Trump did it. Like, that's what basically what January 6th was. You know what I mean? And I don't think that it's an accident that we don't really see that. I mean, the last time we saw something, I think even close to that was when, you know, Cori Bush had her sit out on uh, uh, the Senate steps. I believe that was around the uh, uh, rent moratorium during the pandemic. Now, I, I don't quite remember whether or not she like actively asked people to come, but I mean, she didn't have to because not only were people sort of naturally drawn there because they understood the importance of what she was doing, but she also, you know, shamed her colleagues in Congress who were heading home, you know, for their vacation thing or whatever. There were people that turned around and came back. And, you know, some of them also didn't miss the opportunity for a photo op to make it seem like they were on um, the, the, the right side of this issue. But I say that it doesn't seem like a coincidence that they don't mobilize people is because, uh, you know, they're probably afraid that even if they can mobilize people uh, for something that they're supporting, they may be afraid that they may use that very same ability uh, against them uh, when they inevitably, you know, uh, betray betray some uh, uh, aspect uh, uh, of, you know, uh, policy that would help poor working or uh, oppressed folks. And so, you know, what the ruling class wants least of all, what it fears above all else 
is the very kind of movement that we're saying that we need. Under no circumstances do they want this 140 million people um, to uh, come together under uh, an agreed-upon program and uh, an agreed-upon sort of ideology or consciousness or orientation towards uh, all of these issues with all of that ire and righteous rage and uh, divine discontent aimed squarely at them. But this is happening even... Even without them and and, and it's happening and, and I feel like as movement people and as organizers, we should be aware of that and be figuring out the best ways for us to be involved directly in helping to uh, uh, strengthen that effort. As you know, I maintain that's going to be the only thing that's going to critically address all of the pertinent issues that we talk about here on the show and that go on in this country and indeed around the earth as these issues are all tied together as they're produced by the same systems. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Rachel Hughes, so much for joining us today. We'll be back from all the all-new episodes. As always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.